Bible up to the book of Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 4. And so if you're looking uh, for where Daniel is, um, if you go to the Gospel of Matthew and go backwards 12 books, you will find the book of Daniel. Or if you go to the book of Ezekiel and go forward one book, you'll find the book of Daniel. So it's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible, Daniel chapter 4. I don't know if you noticed this morning, but it might sound different in here. Uh, This last week, we had a group of volunteers working hard, setting up new speakers for us, and I definitely can tell as I hear my own voice um, rattling around in here, it sounds, sounds different to me at least. I think it sounds better. Hopefully it sounds better. So Daniel chapter 4. We're in a series on the attributes of God. And our goal in this series is to go and look at the Lord. Who is the Lord? What is he like? And here in Daniel chapter 4, we see something particular about God. And I'm going to read this morning, starting in verse 4 through verse 37. So hear the word of God. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, who was named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. And the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able 
for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the fields. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling place shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Let's pray. Oh, Father, your word is good, and we need this good word Would you teach us this morning and would you train our hearts 
that we might praise and worship you. That we might call you the the one and only, the true sovereign God. Give us this faith this morning, we pray. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Some lessons have to be learned the hard way. Whether it is a matter of stubbornness or just plain old foolishness or ignorance, some lessons have to be learned the hard way. It's only through humiliation and failure that some can move forward. And as we consider Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar had to learn a lesson the hard way. We see it. We read Daniel chapter 4. The word of the Lord came to Nebuchadnezzar. It came to him in a dream, in a vision, and it also came to him clearly through the words of Daniel. But as we heard in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar refused to listen to the word of God. And the gist of that word that came to Nebuchadnezzar goes like this. Nebuchadnezzar had become a proud man. And so he needed to humble himself before the Most High God. Nebuchadnezzar had become a sinful man, and he needed to heed the word and the law of God. Nebuchadnezzar, who ruled over the kingdoms of the world, he needed to bend his knee to the one true king, the supreme ruler of all, God himself. And so we get this scene. There is Daniel interpreting this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And it was a tough position to be in if you're thinking about Daniel. And Daniel begins to plead with the king that the king would would obey God's word. Verse 27, Daniel pleads, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel's pleading with the king, obey the word of God. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't listen. Because of his pride, because of his stubbornness, he refuses. The warning is given. It is given in this dream. It is given in Daniel's words. It is given in Daniel's pleading. But Nebuchadnezzar won't take the warning. And so we get this dramatic scene. If we can picture it in our minds, there's Nebuchadnezzar. He is strolling on the roof of his palace, and that must have been a a big palace if you can go for a walk on your roof. So there's Nebuchadnezzar, he's going for a stroll on top of his palace, and he's looking out at his kingdom. He is perched up, and his eyes are scanning, and there was so much to scan. As As he looked out, he could see the works of his hands. All that he has done was before him. It was glorious. It was good. Here is the fruit of my authority and my power. And as you think about Nebuchadnezzar's situation, Nebuchadnezzar was used to praise. Men were awed by Nebuchadnezzar. Surely all of his subjects regularly praised him for all of the great deeds that he had accomplished. But here in this scene, Nebuchadnezzar is overcome with awe, and he's overcome with awe with himself. He loves himself, so taken up in wonder, in the wonder of his own power and glory, Nebuchadnezzar begins to sing his own praises. Verse 30, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? 
my mighty power, for the glory of my majesty. And as readers, we listen to these words, and after seeing that vision with Nebuchadnezzar and listening to Daniel interpret it for Nebuchadnezzar, we just groan. (sighs) Nebuchadnezzar, you should know better. You should have been singing the praises of God, not his own. And so here comes the hard lesson, verse 31, verse 32. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. And as we think about the word glory, this was no hyperbole. Because of the word of the Lord, Nebuchadnezzar was then debased. No longer did he resemble anything glorious. No longer did he look human. He grazed like an ox in the pasture. And he lived out in the open. No covering, no shelter. The rain fell upon him and so did the dew. His hair grew long like eagle's feathers. His nails became like the talons of a bird. In short, he looked like an animal and he behaved like an animal. He had the mind of a beast. And as we think about this whole scene, it is a fitting judgment. Nebuchadnezzar's heart was beast-like. And so the Lord, in his judgment, made him become who he truly was, a beast. And as we think about it, God's judgments are never random or haphazard. They always make sense. Nebuchadnezzar, you are beast-like in your heart, and now you shall resemble that with all of your conduct, even your appearance. But as we keep reading this story, we see that this hard lesson, I don't think we can imagine a harder lesson for such a great king, did its work. This humbling humbled Nebuchadnezzar, and as a result of this humbling, his sense returned to him, and he gave glory to God, verses 34 and 35. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? What have you done? So as we take in Daniel chapter 4, we can ask, what was this lesson that Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn? What did he need to learn? Why did he need this humbling? Well, the answer is this. He needed to learn the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Who is in charge? Who rules the world and all that is in it? Who lifts men up and puts them in power? And who lowers men and subjugates them and humbles them? Who deserves honor and glory and power and worship? The only answer we can give after listening to the story of Nebuchadnezzar is the Lord himself. God is sovereign. And so that's our sentence for this morning as we work through the attributes of God. God is the sovereign God. And this doctrine, as, as Nebuchadnezzar's story ably illustrates, is about God's kingly rule. When we're talking about God's sovereignty, we're considering God as he is the king over all things. And it is a doctrine that is consciously building on the doctrines that we have already laid. It's building on the doctrine of omnipresence and omnipotence and omniscience. And what this doctrine is doing is it's taking those omni words and it is applying these words to God's rule and dominion over all things. 
And the result of this doctrine is this. It is a doctrine that lifts God up above all men and powers and boldly asserts his right to do what he wants with all that he has made. God is sovereign. So that's our doctrine this morning, and we need to dig into it. Nebuchadnezzar introduces it to us, and so we can ask, well, what does it mean for God to be the sovereign God? When we say this, what sort of things should we be ascribing to God in his sovereignty? To answer that question, I want to go back to Nebuchadnezzar's words. He, he confesses this to the Lord in verses 34 and 35. We've, we've read it now twice. And when we go back to those two verses, we get some answers because when we listen to Nebuchadnezzar carefully, we find the contours of God's sovereignty defined for us by this king. So if you have your Bible open, look at verse 34 and verse 35 with me. And as you're looking at those two verses, we should first notice this, that Nebuchadnezzar uses expansive language to talk about God and his rule. He says things like this, his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar also talks about that God's rule extends over all the inhabitants of the earth. It even extends to places like the, the hosts of heaven. And so Nebuchadnezzar is telling us about what? He's telling us about the, the sphere of God's sovereignty. And as we listen to him, that sphere of God's sovereignty is universal in scope. All peoples, all places, all times, that's the scope. Second, as we look at these two verses, take notice of the language, the authoritative language that Nebuchadnezzar uses. Who is in charge? It's not Nebuchadnezzar. It is God who is in charge of all things. And Nebuchadnezzar simply confesses the truth. He says, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So Nebuchadnezzar is telling us about the absolute nature of God's sovereignty. What is the nature of God's sovereignty? Nebuchadnezzar says it is absolute. And third, take notice of the explanatory language that Nebuchadnezzar uses. Why are some things done and not others? Why did this happen? Why didn't that happen? According to Nebuchadnezzar, it is not a matter of luck or blind fate or chance. It is not a matter ultimately of human decision making. Rather, it is God's will. Nebuchadnezzar confesses, he does according to his will among the host of heaven. So we've got these two verses and they're very helpful. And so let's just wrap our arms around what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. God's sovereignty is first of all, universal in scope. Second, absolute and nature, and third, bound and determined by his own will. What's God's sovereignty? Well, that's what God's sovereignty is. Now, we need to do some more work here and dig into these, these three descriptions of God's sovereignty that Nebuchadnezzar gives, and that's what I want to do and spend the rest of our time doing. So let's pick up that first part that Nebuchadnezzar gave us. He tells us that God is sovereign over all. His sovereignty is universal in scope. So we need to focus in on that one little word. God is sovereign over all. What do we mean by that word, all? Now, we can't feel the force of this word unless we go and search out what the scriptures mean by that little word, all. So what is meant by the word, all? Well, we can start with this. 
God is sovereign over rulers. We can think of great men who control things. Why do kings and governments ultimately make the decisions that they do? Well, Proverbs 21.1 says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Who rules the king? Well, the king of kings. Why are certain men kings and prime ministers and rulers, and why aren't others? Why does this man come into power? Well, Daniel chapter 2, verse 21 answers, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. We can think about history. Why did this event happen? Why did that thing occur? Why did these people live in this part of the world and not over there? And why did they move from this place to, to that place? What sort of answer can we give? Well, Acts chapter 17, verse 25 answers this. Paul says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Who is writing history? Well, it is the Lord. He is determining all things. We can go on. We can think about small things or mundane things. Why does the sun come up every morning and set every evening? And why does it do that day after day after day? Why does the rain fall to the earth? Who controls all of the animals and what they do? And we could go on listing off all of the mundane things that make up this world. But here is the answer. God causes the sun to rise every single morning. He says rise and it rises. And he says set and it sets. Every day he utters his command. He sends rain to the earth. In fact, he sends every single drop of rain to the earth by the word of his command. Jesus loves to speak about the meticulous nature of God's sovereignty. God rules over all things, all things small. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Amazing. The sparrows, they're all under God's control. Well, what about seemingly random things? Things like dice. You're playing a game and you just roll those dice out there. Is God in charge of that? Well, in God's economy, there is no such thing as chance or luck. All things are determined by God. Proverbs 16.33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. This also extends to stubborn things. Nothing is more stubborn than the weather. You can't change the weather. What do you have to do? You have to put up with the weather and just receive what the weather gives and wait for something better. But here's the thing. God controls the weather. He does with the weather whatever he wants. Psalm 148 verse 8 says this, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. Sovereign over weather. And there are stubborn people too, not just stubborn things. If you think about it, there are people who can't be reasoned with. You're, you're trying to argue with them and talk reason into them, but your words just bounce right off of their, their foreheads. They can't be moved. It seems like their, their heart is stuck in cement. But here's the glorious truth. God is sovereign over stubborn people too. Isaiah wrote about a particularly stubborn man. And listen to what Isaiah says. Chapter 37, verse 29. I will put my hook into your nose, 
and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Just think about that. What is the Lord going to do with this stubborn man? He's going to put his hook in his nose and his bit in his mouth and just move him around wherever he wants. The Lord is sovereign over stubborn people. And there are stubborn spirits too. Spirits intent on doing harm and evil. And we must say this, God is in charge of them. Do you remember that scene in the gospel in the presence of Jesus? What did the demons do? They cower in his presence. And when Jesus speaks, what do they do? They do whatever he says. They have to obey his word. Sovereign over spirits. All things. And we ask, well, what about terrible things? As we think about it, this world is full of terrible things like cancer and hurricanes and tornadoes and strokes and all sorts of sicknesses. Are those things, even these terrible things, under God's charge too? Does he control those things? All of them? The testimony of scripture is clear. God controls all things, even terrible things. Deuteronomy 32, 39. Some of the most expansive language in scripture talking about God's sovereignty The Lord says this, I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. This is a thorny one, a really thorny one, and we say, well, what about sin? If there's anything outside of God's control, it would have to be this, it would have to be sin. If there's anything outside of God's authority, it would have to be this matter of sin and rebellion against his word. But here we must say no, and we must say a careful no, because God cannot sin. God is good and always good. But the scriptures teach us that God has charge and rule and control even over sin. In fact, catch this, God himself carefully planned and brought to pass by his sovereign power the greatest, the most heinous sin that has ever been accomplished on the earth. What is that sin? The death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what the church says about the Lord as they pray to him. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. They pray this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And that makes sense to us. We've read the gospel accounts. All of these actors are working against Jesus. They flog him, they try him, they crucify him. We know it. Then listen to what the church says. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand And your plan had predestined to take place. Who's in charge of that scene? It is the Lord himself. So God's sovereignty, as we take stock of all that the Bible says about God's sovereignty, is truly universal. When we use the word all, we really mean all things. We're speaking as inclusively as possible. The Heidelberg Catechism sums up well the Bible's testimony with these words. The Catechism says, Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance but from his fatherly hand. God rules over all. That's what it means for God to be sovereign, one king, one king over all. So that's the first description that Nebuchadnezzar 
gave up. God is sovereign over all things. Now we can move on to the second description that Nebuchadnezzar gave us. God's sovereignty is absolute in nature. Now think about it like this. It doesn't matter what station of life you find yourself in. You always have to answer to someone. No one is truly autonomous. No one is truly absolute. Think about it. Children have to answer to whom? Their parents. And, and who, do teach, who do students have to answer to? Well, they're, they're teachers. Or, or think about teachers. Who do they have to answer to? Well, they're administrators. And if you're an employee, who do you answer to? Your boss. And if you're a boss, who do you answer to? Your clients. If you're a citizen, you have to answer to the law. And if you're a government, you have to answer to your people and ultimately to God himself. This is how life works for us as creatures. There's always another level of authority over us. We're always giving answer to someone. Someone can always check our work. No one truly answers to himself. But here's the thing about God as we think about his sovereignty. He doesn't answer to anyone or anything. There is no one above him. There is no one beside him. There's nothing external to him that has authority over him. No one checks his work or, or gives him a grade. No one reviews him. No one orders him about and tells him what he must do and what must be done. No one advises him. His sovereignty is absolute in nature. Absolute in nature. And the Bible wants us to understand this, and so it gives us a a perfect illustration. The Bible loves to talk about a potter and a pot. So you can think about this in your mind. And, and this is how the prophets speak about the Lord and what the Lord does. And so you can think of a, a potter at his work. He's got a wheel and then he's got a chunk of clay on the wheel and he is, he is fashioning it into a pot. So you have that in your mind. And just imagine the scene, and this is how the prophets talk. I'm drawing from Isaiah 45, verse 9, and Isaiah 29, verse 16. Uh, imagine this ridiculous scene. So you've got the potter, he's working at his wheel, the pot is up there, and he's manipulating it, and he's, he's turning it into whatever he wants. Now think about it like this. This would be so ridiculous. If the pot turned around and said this, hey, what are you making? Hey, I don't like what you're making. Why doesn't this pot have handles on it? Hey, you didn't make me. Not a chance. Or, or this potter, you have no idea what you're doing. No, that does, that's ridiculous. And that's what the prophets tell us. The clay is under the control of the potter. And the clay doesn't get to resist. Doesn't get to object and say, hey, no. And this is how all creation is related unto God. He is the potter and we are the clay. And because of that, he has the right and the prerogative to do what he wants with what he has made. Jeremiah 18.6 puts it like this. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. And God is asserting his absolute sovereignty over his people. And so as we think about God's sovereignty, it is absolute in nature. It is also over all things. And so we can add one more description, the description that Nebuchadnezzar gives us. God's sovereignty is bound and determined by his own will. And so we can think about it like this. God's rule is not haphazard or random. So think about a man. He is building a house. Every man who builds a house builds a house with 
a plan. That, that there's a blueprint, and that blueprint is guiding him and directing him and giving him direction with specificity. The blueprint specifies where each door is to be placed and where each window is to be placed. It tells him how big each room is to be and, and where the staircase is to go. It, it tells him everything that he needs to know, and his job as the builder is to follow the blueprint down to the details. Nothing is left to chance or freelance. And as we think about God's sovereignty, God too has a plan. But here we have to reason carefully. God's plan is not something that is outside of him or above him. God consults no external blueprint or talks to no architect that is outside of him. And we have to deny this because this would make God dependent. And we know that God is perfectly independent. He looks to no one, takes counsel with no one. Rather, we must say that God's sovereignty is bound, directed, governed by his very own will. And so we can work it through like this. Why does this happen? Why does that happen? And the answer that we have to give is this, God's will. We can ask, well, why has God done that? And why did God do this? Why will God do that? And again, the answer that we have to give is this, God's will. Psalm 115 verse 3 has to guide our reasoning. It is so clarifying. The psalmist says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Why does God do what he does? Why does he do what he does? Why is he doing these things? Well, he's doing it because it pleases him. What is guiding him? It is his own pleasure. He only does what he loves, what his pleasure is. And if you were to keep searching out these sorts of questions, if you kept doggedly pursuing these sorts of questions, asking why, like a three-year-old relentlessly does, why, 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 this still would be the only answer you would get. Why? Well, God's will. You can't go any deeper than God's will. You can't go any further than God's will. For this is the end of all reasoning. God's will. So here we have a, a an understanding of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty, first of all, is universal in scope. When we use the word all, we mean the word all because the scriptures teach us what the word all means. And then we add to that, secondly, that God's, God's sovereignty is absolute in nature. He is the authority above all authorities, and he answers to no man or no thing. And third, God's sovereignty is bound by his will. So that all that happens is the unfolding will of God. That's what sovereignty means. We have a theological understanding of that. But now we need to turn practical. What does sovereignty mean for you? What does it mean for you that God is sovereign? Well, I want to, for application, go back to Nebuchadnezzar's story. We find great application there. So let me ask you a question for that, from that story. What did Nebuchadnezzar's sin do to him? What did Nebuchadnezzar's pride and stubbornness get him? Do you remember? It's colorful. Nebuchadnezzar became beastly. He grazed like an ox. He looked like a crazy bird. He was driven from men and he acted like a beast. He was degraded to a mere animal. Now, what does any of this mean? Is this supposed to mean something? And here I think we get a vivid picture of what sin does people. 
What does sin do? It dehumanizes humanity. It robs man of his glory, the glory a man ought to have as an image bearer of the glorious God. And it leaves him, this is what sin does, it leaves people looking and acting like a dumb beast of the fields. And so in, in Nebuchadnezzar's story, we see sin exposed for what it does, and we need this. Why? Because sin always sells high. What does sin do when it, it comes in temptation, luring you in? It's offering you a better life than, than what God does. As we think about it, this is what was offered to Eve in the garden. This is what was offered to Nebuchadnezzar as he strolled on top of his palace. And this is what is offered to us every day. Sin beckons to us. It says, you can be like God. You can have all the good you want in this life without reference to God. Now, as we think about our own lives and all the temptations we meet, this certainly comes in sophisticated speech. It's coming at us in all sorts of different directions, but at the end of the day, when you boil down all the different temptations you meet, they can be, they can be boiled down to this one principle. You can be like God. You can be like God. You can live without reference to this God. But here's the thing. While sin sells high, it only can deliver low. Sin makes men beastly. It robs us of our glory. And just like Nebuchadnezzar, we become beastly. And this is the world we live in. This is happening around us all of the time. Romans chapter 1 verse 28 puts it like this. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And Paul throughout Romans chapter 1 is telling us what sin does. He, he is writing essentially again Daniel chapter 4 and telling us this is what happens to every person who sins. It degrades. It makes men beastly. Whereas Paul says debased in mind to do what ought not to be done. And so as we think about the human situation, we ask, well, what is the way out of our human situation? What is the way out of our sin? Well, here's the principle we need to, to grab onto and not let go of. And the principle goes like this. The less we acknowledge of God's sovereignty, the more beast-like we become. The more you bristle at God's sovereignty, the more beast-like you will become. That's what happens. But this principle flips around as well. The more we acknowledge God's sovereignty and do that gratefully with thanksgiving in our hearts, the more truly human we become, or to put it in a more daring way, the more we acknowledge God's sovereignty over all things, the more truly glorious we become. You want to become a glorious person, reflecting the glory of God? Acknowledge God's sovereignty over everything. And Nebuchadnezzar's life spells this out with great detail. When Nebuchadnezzar refused to glorify God and acknowledge gratefully God's sovereignty, what happened? He became a beast, not just in heart, but in appearance and in mind. But when Nebuchadnezzar came to his senses and was humbled, he regained his glory. And he regained his glory how? Well, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So what does this look like for you? What does it look like to acknowledge God's sovereignty? 
Well, one doesn't need a big theological workbook or textbook to answer this question. It means this, to joyfully affirm God's sovereignty over all things. Big things, small things, mundane things, important things, wondrous things, and even things terrible. What does it look like? Well, it means this, to put on faith and to accept what the Lord gives and also to accept what the Lord takes away. The Lord gives good things in life, and what should we do? We should acknowledge God's sovereignty, and the Lord also brings terrible things into our lives, and what should we do then? We should acknowledge God's sovereignty. This is what Job did, Job 121. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's how we acknowledge God's sovereignty. We follow in Job's footsteps. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. I will bless him. What else does it mean? Well, it means to strap on obedience and to do what the Lord has said without questioning or complaining or grumbling, without hesitation. The Lord reveals his will for us, his revealed will. It is in the scriptures. He tells us how we ought to live, what we ought to do with our lives. And if we want to acknowledge God's sovereignty, what do we do? We say this, yes and amen. I will do what you say, O Lord. And I will do it without complaining or grumbling or questioning. Because you are the sovereign king, and I am your subject. What else does it mean? Well, it means something glorious. If we're going to acknowledge God's sovereignty, it means that we accept the word of the gospel, and we gladly do it. We gladly confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, the only sovereign, and we wholeheartedly believe that God raised him from the dead. You want to acknowledge God's sovereignty? What do you do? You take the word of the gospel, and you say, yes, it is mine. I love it. I will keep it. I will apply it. What does it look like to acknowledge God's sovereignty? Well, ultimately, it looks like lifting up your voice and speaking the words that Nebuchadnezzar did. It looks like this. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say his hand or say to him, what have you done? It looks like acknowledging his sovereignty and glorying in it. So hear this. This is the path to true humanity. This is the only path to glory. We must willingly and gladly bind ourselves to the one true sovereign king. So I ask you in light of this story, Daniel chapter 4, in light of all of the doctrine that we have worked through, will you gladly do this? Will you gladly do this? Will you affirm, believe, obey, worship the only sovereign God, or will you stubbornly resist and push back? Will you bristle at the doctrine of God's sovereignty, or will you gladly take hold of it and say, yes, that is my king, and I love him for his sovereignty? May we not be like Daniel, or may we not be like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, but may we learn the lesson and acknowledge God's sovereignty. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we want obedient hearts this morning. You are sovereign, and sometimes this doctrine hits us, and it hits us hard. Our, our minds wrestle with it. Our minds turn with it. How can you be sovereign over all things? But your word teaches us that you are. And so we pray and plead, would you give us obedient hearts? Would you teach us this lesson that we might always gladly acknowledge your sovereignty? Would you do this for us? We pray in Jesus' name.